Heavenly Father, Lord, this morning we need that reminder that you are good. God, you are good to us even when we don't realize it. Even when we are running our own way, God, you still remain good. In the midst of a storm, you remain good. You are steadfast, you are faithful, and you are compassionate. Lord, you are a God who comes near to the brokenhearted. You will not break the bruised reed. You are a God who comes alongside us, who is familiar with our weaknesses and can sympathize with us. You are a God who has saved us who has brought about new life, who has brought about transformation, a God who invites us to know you personally. And Lord, this morning, it is my prayer that we would continue to do that, that we would press in to not just sing some songs, to not just do church, but to be in active relationship with you, the one true God. Lord, we are beyond grateful that you are good even when we don't realize it. Lord, I ask that you would begin to open our eyes wider to the love that you have for us that is beyond comprehension that cannot be measured. Lord, we commit this time in this place solely to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Uh, with that, I want to take us and I want to dig into um, our sermon for today, which I think, um, I think is important. So I'm going to pray real quick. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would draw our eyes to you. Lord, might you be lifted high. Might your glory be displayed this morning. Lord, help us to receive and help us to, as a church, pursue your Son more and more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So our sermon series has been, um, it's all about Jesus, right? And that is, in essence, the main point. Like, the title is the point of what we've been talking about, is that truly what we're here to talk about is we're not here to give you um, self-help tips. I'm not here to give you... Um, a bunch of, I don't know, a bunch of programs or something like that. I'm here to talk about Jesus. That's what our church is centered around. Here at Conduit, we want to be centered around Jesus because we believe that his power has, his good news has the power to change everything. We truly do believe that it's all about Jesus and that he can change everything. And that's what we've been talking about these past couple weeks. First week, we, we dove in and we looked at the Bible. And we said, all right, 
let's look at it from beginning to end, and sure enough, every page proclaims Christ. And, and then last week, we talked about the, the gospel. Like, what is, what is Jesus, how did Jesus even describe his own good news when he talked about it to Nicodemus? And he talked about spiritual rebirth, coming out of spiritual blindness into spiritual new birth. And what does that look like? And what is God calling us into? And how does grace begin to transform our lives? And so today, well, before I go into that, I think, I think one of the reasons for this sermon series, for this series of, of sermons and topics, is because you're like, well, Luke, you're, we're a church. Like, don't, isn't like Jesus just a default? Right? Maybe. But like I think that's the dangerous thing, right? Is that is that we just assume that we're focused on Jesus. And what we don't realize is that maybe we've started to focus on something that's maybe Jesus adjacent, but isn't actually Jesus himself. And when we do that, there is something that happens. Our flesh gets inserted. Somehow our own agendas become more of a priority than knowing the person of Jesus and experiencing him in our lives. And I think it's, it's, it's one degree. And my hope is for all of us to be thinking, where can I shift my focus to be more genuinely focused on Christ? And the thing is, is you might think like, it's really sad how often this actually happens. Like, it, it really is. I, I, when I think about this, I think about two friends of mine that I know I met in Bible college. And when I was getting to know both of them, their story of how they came to know Jesus was they grew up in church their entire lives. Like, they were the church kids. Their parents were involved. They were involved. Well, I don't know if their parents were involved, but they were involved. And... They like were at every youth meeting, every Sunday. They were serving. They were doing all of these things. They were the church kids. They were so much the church kids that they decided to go to Bible college. That's how churchy they were. And then they came to know Jesus their first semester at Bible college. Because they'd never heard the gospel. They showed up to Bible college and they were just like, that's the gospel? Like, legit, they had never heard a clear articulation of what grace sounded like. Of what it didn't just mean that, like, going to church and, like, and doing things and being a good kid wasn't what it was all about. They'd never heard that God had accepted them and called them as sons to be transformed by grace by faith alone. They'd never heard that. And that just, it makes me really angry and sad at the same time. And before I think we begin to say just, well, that was some church. It's not us. Let's, let's check ourselves. Right? Let us not just assume that we're really as gospel-centric, Christ-exalting as we maybe think we are. Let's, let's examine ourselves 
And let's ask, why does this even happen? How does this even happen in our lives? Because I think the temptation is is to get caught up in living by association. I can get onto social media, I can get onto whatever streaming platform, Netflix, Hulu, whatever, um, and I can watch a documentary about a cause, right? And maybe I can give like a handful of dollars to some sort of donation, or I can post or tweet, if anybody here uses Twitter, um, um, post or tweet or share on Facebook a meme or, or something like that about like some really good cause, right? Or we could even share like a Bible verse, right? Or we can go and we can say, you know what, I go to a church where the pastors talk about the gospel all the time, and that's really good. Okay, but are you talking about the gospel? Right? Like, not just like, like Cameron and I both strive to talk about Christ, and I'm, I, I desire to grow in that myself, but just coming and listening to me talk about Jesus once a week is not the same as having him personally transform and alter your life. We can't just simply be social media followers of Jesus. He's not some sort of influencer. He's not some sort of celebrity that we just say and like, oh, we like that. Sure, you might affirm it, but like, what are you actually like being transformed by, formed by? We talk about this. I want to read a short passage out of Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, reads this. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will tell them very plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. What will we come up to the Lord and say, Lord, Lord, didn't I go to church every Sunday? Lord, Lord, didn't I, uh, didn't I do the things I was supposed to have done? Didn't I follow and like and listen to enough podcasts? Right? Christ is actually calling us to be doers of the Father's will. To actually orient our lives around something. I was thinking about this this morning, and I think, I think we're on, a lot of us are on treadmills. I think we're in little hamster wheels that we have gotten stuck on in life. I think we are chasing the good life, whatever your version of the good life is, whether that is success, uh, friends, relationships, um, notoriety, uh, influence, power, um, whatever your version of the good life is. This is the thing that I want my life to look like. I want it to look like 
You know, something that just like, it looks like a continual Instagram feed. Right? Like, I want everything that I put on my plate to always just look worthy of taking a photo of. Like, for some of us, that's what we're chasing. Or maybe we're chasing a... Um, maybe we're chasing for a certain amount of respect from people. We want people to always be saying of us, oh, this person is that, or this person is this. They're so wise, they're so smart, they're so biblically trained, they, they know so many things, they're so, like, they're the person you have to ask questions about. We can make it even super spiritual, but it's still chasing this good life. It's chasing this sort of ideal when really we need to get off of that treadmill. Because what I'm telling you is that you can chase whatever your version of the good life is, and you will continue to be as frustrated as you are right now in 30 years. You just will be. Because you still will not have gotten it. Maybe you will even have like gotten your last version of the good life, but now you're like, you know what? Like I need a better I need something else than this. And you're going to continue to chase that. And and you're never going to catch it. And today, my encouragement for you is to stop. Is to stop chasing your version of the good life and to start chasing Christ. To maybe even just stop running all together and to sit with Jesus and to know him and to take delight in him. Because when you do that, you'll find that your life will utterly transform from the inside out. So why then? Why then is it our proclivity to miss Jesus? Why is it our proclivity to come in and talk about things that sound religious and sound good and moral, but still miss Jesus? Why do we chase our own versions of the good life? And I think that is brought out in the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3. If we go all the way back to the beginning of our Bibles... We go to Genesis chapter 3, and those first couple verses will find our answer. That's this. I'm going to start in verse 1 of chapter 3 of Genesis. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. Verse 4 says, You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God knowing good and evil. And then Adam and Eve take the fruit. Notice what the bait was that the serpent laid before Adam and Eve. The bait, the lie, 
was that if they got the fruit, they would become like God. From the beginning of humanity, our sin, our sinful heart, our proclivity has been to take God from his rightful place and to put ourselves there. To say, I know what's best. I'm deserving of all the things that I want. I'm deserving to get them the way that I want them to. And really, like, my life should orient around me. We have, from the beginning of time, continued to be in rebellion and to fight any sort of, like, we just naturally want to remove God from where he belongs. We, we would rather that everything be talked about us rather than actually focusing our attention on God. We are missing the point, and that is just our, our hearts bent. So much of our sin starts in this place of thinking and assuming, I know what is right, that, that I deserve all of the things that I want. If I don't get them, then God isn't deserving of my worship. How many of us get angry at, big, at God because God doesn't conform the world to the way that we want it, and so then we throw a fit and we don't want to worship or serve God anymore because he didn't answer our prayers the way we wanted him to? Right? Throw a tantrum. And this is simply, it says, our hearts lead us to elevate ourselves over God. Like that is our like default, that's the way we tend to operate. And, and the thing is, like that doesn't go away. If we were to look at um, the book of Luke, we're going to go to Luke chapter 22. So go to the New Testament, far away from Genesis. We're going to look at the disciples. The disciples spent years with Jesus. They lived, ate, slept. He was like a friend. He was their teacher, intimately involved in their lives. If there was anybody who was going to like, be able to stay focused on Jesus, you would think it was the guys that lived with him. And so here we are in Luke chapter 2, it's the night, before, it's the night of Jesus' arrest, the day before his crucifixion. Jesus has come into the dinner and he's washed everyone's feet. He washed his disciples' feet, which is a really gross thing to do. And then he's sitting there and then he's taken the bread and the juice, he broke the bread and he talked about the juice, he said, this is my body broken, this is my blood poured out. He instituted the Lord's Supper for the first time, and the disciples have seen all of this, and what do you think they start talking about? They start talking, in verse 24, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater than the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at this table? 
but I am among you one as who serves. Jesus is like, you think that you guys are the greatest. You guys are literally arguing over, like, which one of us is the best disciple? They get into a fight about it. Talk about, like, an awkward family dinner. It's like, Jesus is like, I literally just washed your guys' feet, and you guys still don't get the point that it's not about you. That actually vying for position and trying to be the greatest is the opposite of what you ought to be doing. You actually, right, like, like I'm God, and I washed your feet. Like, it doesn't get more humble than that. And yet, the disciples are immediately just missing the point. They're trying to find a way to put themselves as high on that ladder as possible, to make it as much about themselves, to try and say, well, I'm the greatest disciple, and so, like, you guys all should listen to what I say. And really, I've got, like, this, like, special relationship with Jesus, and, like, I get to hear all the things you guys don't get to hear. And so I've got, like, this authority that you don't. I can hear it, because that's what we still do, right? I'm more spiritual, I'm holier than you. I've got my life together better than you. Everyone really should just ought to listen to me and do things the way I think they should do them. If people would just come and ask me for advice, man, their lives would be a whole lot better. Don't tell me we don't think that. We definitely do. We definitely do. Jesus was right there, and they still... Still miss the point. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus often has these discussions with religious teachers, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and Jesus' interactions with them like, we often want to read these passages and we want to distance ourselves from them. We say, well, like, I would have been one of the disciples. I'm like, yeah, which one? The ones that were arguing over who was the greatest? Um, no, like, we, we want to read and we want to say, oh, well, the religious Pharisees, like, that's like other people. That's not in my heart at all. And, and I think often we need to be inserting ourselves as the Pharisees. That we need to be asking, where is my heart tend to, to be hypocritical? Tend to judge others without grace. In chapter 23 of Matthew, starting in verse 27. This is Jesus's. He's kind of at this. He's going through this, this whole passage. I could probably just read this whole passage. He's just going one by one. And he's criticizing and critiquing these religious teachers, but I wanted to point out verse 27 in particular. is in this list of woes, and he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. It doesn't matter 
what you look like on the outside if your heart is still serving yourself. It doesn't matter if I have everyone fooled into thinking that I've got my life together and that I'm the best religious person out of all of them if my heart is doing that so that I feel self-righteous and that I feel like I'm deserving of the position and authority that others should give me. Because I'm not serving God then, I'm serving myself. doesn't matter what you look like. It matters where your heart is at and who you are serving. That's the priority over and over again in the Bible. God says throughout the Old Testament, the Old Testament where all the sacrificial laws are, God says over and over again, I don't want your sacrifices if I don't have your heart. God has always been more concerned about our inner lives and our heart than outward religious ritual or performance. And Jesus' words to the Pharisees here are a reminder that it doesn't matter what we look like if our hearts are still serving ourselves, if we're dead on the inside. Christ would much, much rather you have the appearance of where you actually are at, right? Like, we don't have it together. Let's just like, let's just name that truth. We do not have it together in this room. I do not have it together. Christ would rather have us be real about that than for us to pretend that is not the reality. I think God has enough grace for where you are at right now that we can stop pretending. Does that, does that make sense? That like God's grace is big enough that he can handle how messed up we are right now and how messed up we will be tomorrow when we're not here. That God understands where we're at. That he understands what we've been through. God is not standing there and he's saying, you know what? Like, maybe you've seen the picture or, like, the idea or, like, the, the, you know, thing. Like, asking a fish to climb a tree and then judging the fish on how well it can climb a tree. Like, God is not coming to you and saying, I need you to be at this level right now, and you simply can't. God's saying, I understand where you're at in your life, and all I'm asking is that you walk with me in grace and take one small, tiny step towards me. That God has enough grace for where you find yourself at right now that we can stop pretending and we can be honest with each other. We don't have to pretend to be perfectly whitewashed tombs to have this beautiful appearance but be in complete denial about what's actually inside. Yeah. That's... That's the extent of the gospel. That's grace and truth. I think we don't, like my first encounter with grace, like the first time that the gospel clicked for me, I was 
I was getting ready to enter into my senior year of high school. And I remember I had a conversation with a leader um, at the end of my junior year. And he was, he was asking, he was like, Luke, like, are you a Christian? I was like, yeah. Yeah, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. Like, and he just like looked at me. And he like didn't believe me. And it made me really mad because I was like, gosh darn it, I, I know the gospel. I'm a Christian, right? Like I, I believe Jesus has forgiven me for my sins. And he just like had this like really dubious like look on his face. I have no idea what was actually going through this guy's mind. But like I just got the impression that he didn't believe me. And I was like, why didn't he believe me? And that summer was a really transformative summer for me in a number of ways. But the main thing that happened was that I was away at like a youth camp and we were at this point where um, uh, we were sitting on like a really hard floor and it was like a worship night and we had all these things going on and I was like, oh, this is the point where all the Christians cry. Um, <laughs> it's literally what I thought in my head. I was just like, this is the point where all the hyper-emotional Christians get up and cry and like, you know, like... I'm just like, I'm going to sit here, and I'm going to read my Bible, and I'm going to find the verse that's going to teach me how to stop sinning. It's literally what I was doing. I had been reading my Bible for months, trying to find the passage that I needed to understand so that I could be perfect. I was looking for the passage that I needed to understand so that I could stop sinning. Because I understood that God had forgiven my past sins, and now it was up to me to be Mr. Perfect Church Kid. That was what I was trying to do. And then somebody, I don't know who to this day this person was, came up behind me, said nothing, placed their hand on my back, and began to pray silently for me. And as they did that, I heard very clearly the Lord tell me, Lord, like Luke, like not in an audible voice, but just so clearly the truth connected with me. Like Luke, I forgave you of your past sins and called you a son, knowing all of your future sins as well. Like I have not just forgiven you from your past, I've forgiven you of your future and I've called you mine knowing that you're not going to be perfect. And for me, that was when I realized that when I had had that conversation with that leader earlier that year, I, I, I didn't get it. I didn't actually understand grace. I didn't get the full extent of the gospel. So I share that to be as utterly clear as possible that the gospel does not forgive you and give you a clean slate and then say it is up to you to not screw it up now. No, it's, it's up to Christ walking alongside you to bring about change, transformation, grace, and mercy for where it is you find yourself at right now. That's how we live the Christian life, not by pretending that we've reached it or we've attained it, but be really, being real about where we really are and then letting Christ meet us right there. So how do we do that? 
how if we've looked at like the negative examples of what it looks like to insert ourselves and to lift ourselves up in sort of a religious way, what does it actually look like? How do we actually stop doing that and continue to put Christ at the center? And how do we experience that kind of transformation? I'm going to turn to John chapter 3. This is where we were at last week. And it's really, the whole chapter is just rich. But we're going to go past the part where Jesus was talking with Nicodemus. We're going to go to... Um, We're going to go to verse 22. So, verse 22 of chapter 3 of John. So, here we have um, Jesus' ministry, like, started when he was baptized. But he was baptized by a guy named John the Baptist, who was his cousin. John the Baptist had a ministry that was blowing up. Like, everyone knew who John the Baptist was. It was actually kind of a thing that they, like, were confusing who Jesus was with John the Baptist because John the Baptist was more well-known than Jesus at the beginning. John the Baptist had this very impactful ministry, and he was baptizing people, and it was, it was such a radical thing what he was doing. Because baptism was a thing, you know, like when we dunk people down into the water. That was a thing that was practiced, but it was only ever practiced for people who were converting to Judaism. So if a Gentile, someone like me who is not Jewish, decided to follow Yahweh, decided to become Jewish in religion, I would have had to have gone through this ritual cleansing ceremony of baptism. But John the Baptist wasn't baptizing Gentiles. He was baptizing Jews. And this was shaking everything up because John was saying, look, look, you don't realize how unclean you are and how unready you are to receive the Messiah. And so John is doing this radical ministry and he baptizes Jesus and that begins the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And then after that's happened, we're going to see, this is the passage we're picking up after all those events have happened. And this is in verse 22 of chapter 3 of John says, by the way, the book of John is written by a different John than John the Baptist. Just clarifying that. So 22 says, after this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where they spent some time and baptized. Now John was also baptizing at Anon near Salim. Because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. John is eventually put in prison and decapitated. And an argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. So they're having this debate over, like, is what John the Baptist is doing, like, ceremonial washing and how he's doing this. Like, they're probably getting into an argument over that. And then they come to John the Baptist and said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, that man who was with you, talking about Jesus, on the other side of the Jordan, the one that you testified about, look, He's baptizing, and everyone is going to him. 
So they're coming, these disciples, these followers of John the Baptist who've been part of this growing, influential religious movement. John's been saying, I'm here not to prepare the way for myself, but to testify about someone who's coming. And then that person comes, John baptized them, and then they come and they say, hey, John, that guy you were with, that guy you baptized that you're maybe talking about, yeah, he's like doing what you were doing. And he's like, people are going over to him. Like, what are we going to do about that? Like, he's stealing our followers, right? And, and there's, there are records, ancient records of different rabbis and religious teachers literally getting into turf wars with each other, like threats of violence and insult and physical altercations, the whole nine yards. So, like, they're coming, and, like, it wouldn't be out of their, like, what are we going to do? How are we going to sabotage them? Like, we got to get people back over to hear what you're doing, John. How does John reply to that? He replies in verse 27. He says, to this John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. Verse 29 says that the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater and I must become less. Other translations have famously translated that. I must decrease and he must increase. John's response to the immediate knee-jerk reaction of his disciples of saying, like, your ministry is going to start shrinking now because people are going to this Jesus guy rather than you. And John says, good. That's how it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be forgotten. Christ is supposed to be remembered. And that is a radically different attitude than I think we often carry. I think we, we want people to remember us much more significantly than maybe perhaps we're concerned with how they remember or think of Christ. Is that actually our attitude? Do we actually want to make disciples of people? Are we interested in helping people know Jesus greater? Or are we interested in helping people admire how spiritual and religious we are? What are our actual desires? What are our actual motives? Are we vying for power inside of a church community? Do we want people to have, in, do we want to have influence in the way that things are done? Do we want to have spiritual credibility? Do we want to have sort of this spiritual appearance and reputation? All of those are things that are absolutely at play in church. Like 110%. We can be very concerned over power dynamics and getting our way and having people think highly of us or be the person that we get called on to get asked certain questions or we get put on a certain committee. Those things absolutely can become at a level what we really desire is that own personal notoriety rather than the advancement of Christ's kingdom and people knowing Christ more. What I think some of us need to be reminded of 
is that we are called to stop using the altar of Jesus as a platform. Like, Jesus isn't the thing that we get to tag onto our social media posts in order to get more likes and follows. Jesus, like, this isn't about, like, amassing people to, like, be our friends or to think we're influential or build our own kingdom. We're here that people would not know us but would know Christ. So the question that I got to ask is when people walk into our small groups, if they were to sit in on our conversations about church, would they see Christ or would they see us? Do I do, I do religion in a performative way? Like, am I reading my Bible in order to know Jesus more or am I reading my Bible in order to answer apologetic questions in a slicker way? Am I, you know, am I like, if no one's looking, am I still meeting with Christ? Like, if it's just me, like, if no one knows what my, if no one gets a glimpse of my spiritual life, do I still care what my spiritual life looks like? The church is a place of dying to yourself and living to Jesus. Like, it is so easy for us to co-op good things that the church does and turn them into our own personal things to make us feel better. We're really, we're here to die to ourselves and to live to Christ so that Christ might be glorified. So I have a couple questions that I think will help us diagnose, diagnose, diagnose our own hearts and try and kind of get at where our hearts are. The first of those questions are, are you more aware of the sin of others than you are of your own? Right? Am I more keenly aware of what so-and-so is doing wrong and what so-and-so ought to be doing than I am of my own failings and my own blind spots? Am I much more concerned about them or am I much more concerned about what Christ is doing in my own life? Second question. Do you believe that if people would just listen to you, things would be better? Like, if people just asked my advice and just took it, like if they just did the things that I, I'm telling everyone to do, like it would be better around here. Like, is that the voice that we believe? Do we actually believe that we are so wise that if people would just do exactly what we'd say, that like, it would all fix all of their problems and that all of our frustrations would go away? Do you have anyone in your life who you are in deep relationship with who speaks truth to you? Like, do we have someone in our life with permission to speak hard truths to us? Or do we kind of avoid that? We maybe buck authority. Maybe we want 
um, only people that we can speak into but can't speak back into our lives? Are we putting up this wall that keeps us protected from really the loving correction of community? And then the last question that I have for us is, does secret sin hold you in a bondage of silence? Are we in a place where we believe that we cannot be honest about what's actually going in our life? Because if we did, the image that everyone has of us would absolutely crumble. And we believe that, and so we're going to continue to prop up this image of ourselves and live in a bondage of silence. How we answer those questions begins to give us a picture of where our hearts are actually at. Because all of those are kind of a building up of an ego, of a false self, of an understanding that like I've got it together and no one else does. So how do we shift? I feel like I very, very clearly defined the problem. But my, my final point is really to clarify the solution, which is Jesus. Like, like spoiler alert. Okay. How does John the Baptist reconcile this? Like John, in this passage, gives us the key to how and why his heart responds the way that it does to that question. How do we get the same heart that John the Baptist had? And, and he kind of gives this wedding example, and, and this made me think of um, some very wise advice I got from an older pastor. Um, we were talking about you know, how to do weddings and all this stuff, and like all the Bible verses you should use, and like how to prep a wedding sermon and all this stuff. And he was like, but very, very important tip that I've got for you. All you pastors, listen. He was teaching the class of pastors, and he was just like, when you announce the couple, like you're up there in front, and they're bride, groom, and then you say, like, you're like, pronounce you, man, wife, like you may now kiss the bride. He says, whatever you do, do not just stand there in the middle of them and make this really weird face as they kiss. <laughs> like, because some photographer somewhere is taking a photo, and there's going to be this photo of you going right, right above this couple that's having a very tender moment. Like, get out of the way when you say that. Like, pronounce you man and bride. You may now kiss the bride. Get out of the way so that everyone can look at the bride and groom because it's not about you. Right? He also said, have painfully brief sermons because no one came to listen to you preach. They came to see the couple get married, right? It's not about you. Get out of the way. And that is essentially, I mean, John gives essentially a very similar um, analogy. He talks about, again, a wedding. But rather than talking about sort of the first kiss moment and all of that, he's talking about the best man. And in, in ancient cultures, like ancient, ancient cultures, there was actually, there was a rule that was put in place that if you were to be the best man for someone, you were to be, take on this very special role, there was a special name for it, that you were now legally or culturally never allowed to under 
any circumstances ever marry the bride. Like, generally, like, we, you shouldn't do anyways. But, like, but the point was is to, like, put it in, in such, make it so explicit so as to avoid the, the, the groomsman, the best man, from ever, like, letting something bad happen to the groom so he could swoop in and get the bride. Like, that was kind of what it was for. But, like, it was this thing of saying, like, no, the best man is there solely to serve the couple. Like, he has no part of himself in it. It's not about him. He's there to rejoice with the groom's rejoicing. John says that the joy is made complete when the, when the best man hears the joy of the groom in meeting his bride. And that's what John was experiencing. He says, don't you guys see that the groom has come, that he's come to rescue his church, that he's come to make a bride for himself? And that is my joy. My job has been complete because it's simply to just point and say, look to Christ. That's the point of my ministry. And my joy is in that. And so the solution for us, the remedy for our selfish hearts, is to take joy in Jesus. Like the remedy, the solution for our heart condition isn't to beat ourselves up more, it's to take joy in Jesus all the more. What are we taking joy in? What do we rejoice in? What do we treasure? Do we treasure those moments where people say, well, that was really good Good, good thing you did there. Like, it was a really good, like, religious thing. Or, like, or, you know, you've really got it together. Or, like, you know, come up and ask you just your advice for something. Right? Do we treasure those moments or do we treasure the moments where people get closer to Christ? Do we treasure Christ himself? Do I spend time with Jesus so that I can get a nice Instagram photo of it? Or do I spend time with Jesus so that like, I can come and impress my Bible study group? Do I spend time with Jesus just to have the appearance of looking religious and holy? Or do I spend time with Jesus because he is my delight, he is my joy, and the thing in which I find my meaning and purpose and satisfaction in? Our whole lives will begin the shift when we begin to find joy, not in the things that I can get from me or the things that I can have, but when I begin to find joy in Jesus. We need to be spending enough time with Jesus that we're learning to delight in him. Like, that's a, it's like a commitment. Like, we need to... Do that, because if we do that, if we let the joy of Jesus lead you, eventually you will display the glory of Jesus. If you let following after and enjoying Jesus be the guiding principle of your life, eventually you will display glory upon glory of Jesus Christ. Because what we take joy in is what we display right? Listen to me long enough, you'll hear me talk about sci-fi shows and fantasy shows and books I'm reading and RPGs and all this stuff that I really enjoy, right? 
or your sports teams, like whatever the thing is that we enjoy, or whether that's family, children, relationships, accomplishments, the things we take joy in that we delight in are the things that we display the glory of. If we take joy in Christ, we will display Christ. And if we begin to focus our lives around the joy of Christ, I guarantee you, you will find is that you will be off of that treadmill that you were on that I was talking about earlier in the sermon. That treadmill where we're chasing the good life, where we're constantly dissatisfied and we can never seem to get where we want to be because there's always another place to go. Suddenly that treadmill stops. Suddenly that hamster wheel stops spinning. And it's okay to be right where we're at because Christ is there. The thing that we can take ultimate joy and pleasure in is the relationship with Jesus being directly present with us. And we don't have to chase that. We get to just sit in that. We get to delight in that. And that's the call that Jesus makes. Come look to me and find new life. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and delight in me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you this morning in need of an infusion of your spirit and what it means to rejoice in you. Lord, I ask that you would fill us up with the realization of your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness, your tenderheartedness towards us, your compassion towards us. Help us to understand what it means that you are a loving father towards us. And God, might that fill us with joy. Lord, help us to stop running and help us to sit where we're at, and be with you, to delight in you. Lord, help us to even understand the backwards truth that you delight in us, that you have sent your son to forgive us of our sins, that we are in relationship with a God who has first loved us, that has rescued us from our brokenness and has offered us a way forward. God, help us to wrestle with that truth. God, help us to lay aside the appearance of being religious and to pick up the relationship that you invite us into. God, we want to be a people Formed by you. God, help us to draw closer. And Lord, I, I ask that you would open our eyes and our hearts to just how much you already are drawing closer to us. God, I commit to you, everyone here today, and ask that you would be in their lives today exactly the way that they need you to be there. 
Jesus, we ask that you might be glorified in the joy we experience in knowing you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Jesus is so good. He is so, so good. And he desires for you to know just how vastly good he is. Conduit, I pray that we go from this place this week proclaiming the name of Jesus into every corner of our lives. I pray that this morning you would know the joy in Jesus Christ that alone he can bring, alone the deliverance he offers, and the freedom that is found there. Conrad, I pray that you know that you are loved, and I pray that you know the joy of Jesus. Go in peace.